We're going to spend some time looking at the scriptures together. We like to do this every week because we believe that the Bible is the way that God speaks to us. It speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself as we open it up and as we listen and as we study. So if you have a Bible, open it up to John 13. We're in a series called The Last Words of Jesus. These last several chapters of the Gospel of John zero in on the final hour, is how he describes this, the final hour of his life, which is this last week that is focused on his death and resurrection. So we're going to be in John chapter 13 today. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs. You can grab one of those and open it up to page 899. Page 899, John chapter 13. We're continuing this chapter from last week. Um, Last week, we looked at the way Jesus washed his disciples' feet and taught them how to love one another in that humble and practical way. And now we're finishing the chapter, and he's going to give this very strong, very well-known command, love one another. Love one another. There's a famous church father that, that wrote very early on, one of the Latin church fathers named Tertullian. Tertullian. And what Tertullian said is that genuine gospel righteousness in the cross is often stolen away from our hearts by two twin thieves. And he says it's just like how Jesus was crucified with a thief on, other, uh, on either side of him, that often the gospel love that we should know in Jesus is stolen from us by two twin errors or thieves. And those errors are going to be exemplified in the text, in the text today. So we're going to have this command, love one another as Christ loved us, and then we're going to have a negative example on either side of it. We're going to have Judas, who's going to give us the error of what we would call indulgence, right? We miss God's love by thinking we've just got to indulge ourselves and love ourselves. It's kind of a selfish love, and that's sometimes how we miss the gospel. Selfishness, indulgence, following our own heart. And then we're going to get the negative example of Peter at the end. And that would be more of the example of religion or self-righteousness, right? That is thinking I can do enough on my own to earn God's love by my behavior. Those are two ways we miss the gospel. So we've got this command, love one another, with a negative example on either side of it. Let's read. We're going to read uh, chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. It says in verse 21, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified in him. Uh, Excuse me. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me. And just as I have said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So the command is, is love one another, just as I've loved you. Love one another, and conveniently, we have kind of a negative example on either side. Judas and Peter kind of missing the point, missing how we are to love one another. So let me pray for us and ask the Spirit to help us to learn this, to hear this. God, we pray that you would teach us today. Um, we thank you for your word. We pray that your Spirit would meet us here. Um, we confess that we're not able to love one another apart from your love. And so we ask that, that it would come to us today, right now, through your Spirit, through your word, that you'd sink it into our hearts, that you would change us and shape us to be more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we think of this command, love one another, that's the major command in the middle he's giving us. And like I said, he's got a negative example on either end. Um, so as we kind of flow through the outline, we're going to look at Judas as an example of selfish love, right? Just loving self, not actually loving one another because Christ loved us. So that's the negative example we'll get from Judas. And we've got the command from Jesus to live this real supernatural gospel love, this self-giving love. And then finally, we'll see in Peter, self-righteous love. So I'm going to kind of play on self. Hopefully, I won't get too tripped up over my words here. But it's selfish love, self-giving love, and self-righteous love. Three different options. First one is the idea of selfish love. Judas is the big example of this. He's mentioned repeatedly in the New Testament as a negative example for us to not follow, right? Um, and we talked about this last week. There's something amazing about the reality that Jesus loved him, washed his feet, did all these things to him, even though he knew that Judas was going to betray him. And we know there's a kind of editorial comment in chapter 12 where we know that Judas was stealing from the collection bag, the money bag of the disciples. And so we know that Judas had this particular practice of taking what did not belong to him. And here's what I would say. We all do that when we don't trust God to take care of us. Does that make sense? So you and me, we can all be guilty of this, of taking things that God has said off limits that doesn't belong to you, but we will cross those boundaries and we will take from places we're not supposed to take from because we don't trust Jesus to take care of us. And Judas is the prime example of this. And so look again, verse 21, we see Jesus being truly troubled by this. Not only is Jesus being betrayed, right, by someone he had loved and shared life with for three years, but he's also sad because Judas is giving up true life for something second best. C.S. Lewis said in this famous essay, The Weight of Gloria, I love this essay, he says that the issue is not so much that our desires are too strong, it's that our desires are too weak. We're, we're settling for second best when we choose sex and drink and hobbies over Jesus himself, thinking we can take life apart from God himself. And so that's the example we have here of Judas who is stealing and this troubles Jesus. And I've pointed this out before in the Gospel of John. Jesus is a good example for us as people that it's right and good that we should be troubled about evil and bad things, right? Um, I think in our culture, we really value sometimes being emotionally detached. 
And that's not necessarily a Christian thing, that's more like a cultural value, right? I think it's very much a Western thing, an American thing, especially it's strong among men, even more than women. We have this idea that maturity is somehow not having emotions or detaching ourselves from our emotions. Yet we see in Jesus an example of godly emotions, right? He's angry at things he should be angry at. He's sad about things he should be sad about. And so as we are renewed in the image of Jesus, I I believe we will have real human emotions, right? Now, just to be clear, sometimes our emotions are whack, right? They're just like wrong. That's possible. But that doesn't mean we should remove ourselves completely from emotion altogether. There are right and godly emotions. We see that lived out in Jesus, who is not only God, but he was man, the perfect man. So we see him being troubled in spirit, and he says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And his disciples, they're shocked, right? They, they still don't quite understand what's happening. In verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Now, just to set this up, physically, they would lean against the table. It would be like, you ever have these little TV trays you could sit on the floor with, right? They'd have a low table, be like a big, long, low table, and they'd all lean against it and lean on one elbow and kind of lay on the ground or on pillows, and then they'd eat with the other hand. So that's how they would eat in the first century in this Mediterranean area. That's kind of how they would do it. Um, And so you've got these guys all leaning against the table, and the disciple whom Jesus loved is leaning against Jesus, right? He's the one closest to Jesus at the table. Now, we've talked about this before, but I just want to reiterate, because I know a lot of you are new. John, throughout this gospel, calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And on first hearing, that sounds a little arrogant to us, like, oh, he's the special disciple, right? Um, But remember, this is part of the gospel message. We believe that God loves us. And you and me, we, we need to think the same way about ourselves. We need to have that same identity as John. John's modeling for us here. This is a proper, humble identity. I'm loved by Jesus. Can you believe that? We should see ourselves that way. Do you see yourself that way? Okay, that's not the major point. That's a minor point. We'll, we'll move on. Um, so Simon Peter motioned to him, John, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John, Leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Right? So they're all kind of leaning on each other. Again, cultural differences. They're probably closer than we would like to be, right? But, but that's okay. Different culture. And just like if you're at a big dinner party and everybody's talking and you could kind of lean over and talk quietly to someone next to you, but nobody else hears it. That's kind of what's happening here. So John is, is leaning over, talking to Jesus like, okay, Jesus, who is it? This is what Jesus says. Um, verse 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. That's scary, right? We'll talk about that part in a minute here. So Satan entered into him. And then look at this. Jesus says this, what you are going to do, do quickly. So Jesus knows who his betrayer is. He served him. He's loved him. He points him out to John, and then Satan entered him, and Jesus says to him, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And commentators really like to point this out. I read this in multiple different places. They like to point out that Jesus was always in control, right? Like it wasn't Jesus against his will being murdered and thrown up on the cross. This is Jesus in control because he loves you and he loves me, and he is purposefully giving himself over, right? And so 
evil men are genuinely responsible for the evil deeds that they did, and Satan was a part of this, but Jesus is ultimately in control. He's sovereign. He's the king. He's like, all right, let's go. Here it is. And so he says, what you're going to do, do it quickly. But again, the disciples don't understand. Look at verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, right? He was their supply officer. Um, or maybe he was to give something to the poor. And that was actually common during this feast. The Feast of Passover, they would actually keep late nights at the temple so that people could give extra gifts to the poor. So this culturally fit, right? Like they're like, maybe he's getting extra supplies for the feast, for the Passover meal, or maybe he's going to go give to the poor. So it wasn't crazy for him to leave in the evening during a meal. And so they're not sure exactly what's going on. They don't fully understand I think even John, like John knows now, oh, he's the betrayer, but he still doesn't necessarily know it's about to happen in the next few moments or hours, right? He's still kind of confused. And so he says, we're going to do, do quickly. They thought maybe he was going to help the poor, buy more supplies. Verse 30, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Remember how John keeps focusing on light and darkness as symbols throughout the gospel of John? It's one of the main symbols he keeps coming back to again and again. And and we have to put ourselves in first century shoes and remember they didn't have a flashlight in their pocket all the time. They didn't have street lamps everywhere. They didn't have cars with lights and electric lights in their homes. Light was much more scarce. And so the night and the darkness was a place where you got mugged, right? Or it was a place where you fell into a ditch because you couldn't see. The darkness was scary. And so have you ever been watching a movie and you can't necessarily tell by the visual that it's scary, but scary music plays? You know that moment? You're like, something's about to happen, right? You get nervous. That's what you should feel right here. Like, it's getting intense. Scary stuff is happening. This is a scary music playing. It was night. Satan entered him. Now, this is scary. I want to make clear, because this can bring up fears that we have, right? Fears of monsters and Satan and demons. The Bible teaches that these evil powers are real. But I want to clarify, he's not some innocent victim, Right? He's not like this innocent bystander who loves Jesus faithfully, but then Satan entered him against his will, and now everything went haywire, right? That's not the picture. Judas was already giving himself over to evil. You can cross-reference Romans chapter 1, but Romans chapter 1 is pretty clear that the wrath of God is poured out on us by God giving us over to our own evil desires that we're already pursuing. And that's part of what we see taking place here with Judas. He's pursuing evil. He's selfishly taking care of himself. He's replaying the sin of Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve listened to the serpent, Satan, who said, you can't trust God to take care of you. You got to take care of yourself. Don't believe God when he says, don't take that. You should take it. And then you'll really be happy. Then you'll show God who's boss. That's what Adam and Eve fell for. That's what Judas is falling for. And we fall for that too, right? We fall for the same lies today. Satan whispers the same lies today and we listen and we think, yeah, I can't, I can't trust God to take care of me. I got to take care of myself. And that's why I call this selfish love. This is Judas not believing that he's cared for by God and thinking he's got to care for his own self. Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me. Every time we cross a boundary of where God has said, nope, don't do that, Every time we do that, you know why we do that? We do that because we already didn't trust God in the first place. God says, don't do that. And we think, I've got to do that. 
or I won't have life. I won't have pleasure. I must. I need it. I've got to have it. God doesn't understand. God's holding out on me. And we fall for the same lie again and again. Peter warns us that the devil is still alive today, still a roaring lion trying to eat us. And the same language is reflected. I was referencing in Genesis as well. Genesis 3, we have the serpent in the garden. And then the next chapter in Genesis chapter 4, God warns that sin is like crouching at the door like a lion that wants to eat you. Well, Peter picks this up in 1 Peter. Peter says, yeah, it's, it's a roaring lion. Satan himself is a roaring lion. Not just sin, but evil incarnate. is a roaring lion that wants to eat you. I grabbed a picture here of a scary lion. So now maybe you'll have a healthy fear of sin, okay? I don't do that much like fire and brimstone preaching, but here you go. A scary lion. Sin wants to eat you. Satan wants to eat you. Um, Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 5 eight. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Sin is crouching at your door and it wants to eat you. Every time you think, I can't trust God, I've got to trust myself to meet my own needs, you're giving in to that roaring lion. You're giving yourself over to the predator. You're inviting the lion into your house. But there's this cool thing that Jesus said a couple chapters back, right? He said that when he dies on the cross, Satan is going to be thrown down, the ruler of this world going to be cast down. We talked about how there's kind of a tension there um, that Satan, as Peter says, is still alive. Satan still is walking around trying to eat us, yet he doesn't rule this world the same way he used to because of Jesus's death and resurrection for us. We have a power to resist Satan unlike any other power that's been in in history. And, And so James says it this way. James says, submit yourselves to God, right? Submit yourself to God. Trust him. Say, okay, I'm not sure, I have doubts, but I'm going to trust him anyway. I'm going submit, to submit myself to God. James says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So like if you and I were walking on the street and we saw a big lion, we would probably not resist, we'd probably run, right? But we have this power in the gospel to resist, to say, I believe the gospel. I see that God gave himself for me by dying on the cross for my sins. I trust that God loves me, so I'm going to submit to God. I'm going to trust him, and I'm going to resist the devil. And when that happens, the devil will flee like a bully that's never been stood up to before. He will flee from you. So I share all this because I don't want you to be fearful. I want you to understand that in Christ, you have power over evil in this world. You can actually resist, and the key to resisting is trusting that God is good. That's the key. We call that the gospel, the good news, that God loved you so you can love him and love other people back. You don't have to just love yourself. You're no longer a spiritual orphan. You've been adopted into his family. He's brought you to his table and he's saying, enjoy the feast with me. Come into my family. That's the invitation that God gives to us. So think about the different sins you're tempted to. For, it's all different, right? Often by personality or by experience, there are certain sins we're more tempted to than others. For Judas, it was money. You might be like Judas, right? Like you're just like, I, I got to have money. I'm, I'm not going to be secure unless I have more money. And you're willing to cut corners, right? You're willing to ignore your family or cut corners at work because you've got to have money to be secure. And that's not trusting God, but trusting yourself. Or it might be pleasure. You know that God has said, this pleasure is off limits or pleasure is off limits in this way. But you're like, I, I can't trust God. I've got to grab it for myself. If I don't grab it, I won't be whole. What is it in your life? 
that's, that's luring you off to the path. I want you to hear what he's saying here, especially in, in Peter and James saying, it's, that's a lion that wants to kill you. There will be pleasure for a moment, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to eat your lunch, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to take over your life. So we need to resist. Another good one to look at, and I won't go into detail on that now, but is in Ephesians chapter 6. We hear about there how we can resist Satan, resist evil through what is called the armor of God. And basically, to summarize, a gross oversimplification is the armor of God that you wear is Jesus himself. Paul's commanding there every morning, you, you put on Jesus. You clothe yourself in Christ. You wear his robes of righteousness. You don't trust yourself. You don't trust your ability. You don't trust in your selfish desires. You trust in Jesus. And every morning, we've got to get up and, and put that armor on to resist the enemy. So the next thing we're going to see here is the example, the picture of self-giving love. So I have this beautiful picture, and I want to remind you where we already were in chapter 13, the beginning of chapter 13. We're told in verse 3 that Jesus, before he washed his disciples' feet, he remembered who he was. He remembered the, the perfect fellowship he had with the Father. He remembered that the Father loved him and had given everything to him. And it was out of that that he overflowed to wash the disciples' feet. It was out of the love he had with the Father that then he loved the disciples. And so now here he's going to say, hey, follow that same pattern. We share love with God and then we give love to others. Okay? So look at verse 31 through 35. He says this, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now. Right? He keeps doing this throughout uh, this Gospel of John. He has these, these time signatures that are like, it's not time yet, it's not time yet, it's not time yet. Last week of his life, he says it's time. Now, the hour has come. Now we're going to make this thing happen. This is all going to be now enacted. The clock is ticking. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. So he's emphasizing, this is it. We've been together for three years, but this is it. Here it is. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to die on a cross. I'm going to rise from the dead. It's happening now. He keeps focusing us and focusing the disciples' attention to say, this is it. This is the big work. Everything Jesus did was important, but we would say that his death and resurrection is most important. It's the most important thing he did. It's how we understand the glory of God. It's how we really see who God is. It's how we see that God loves us. It's the proof that we're not orphans, but that he cares for us. So now he's going to use this real sweet language. Look at this in verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Little children. All three of my kids had this one teacher who was older, kind of uh, halfway retired, and she would call all of her students her babies. You ever know anybody like that? Say, oh, my babies. She loved her babies. Yeah, you know her. Um, and so she would refer to her students as her babies, even though these were like, big teenagers that were bigger than her and kind of scary in some ways, right? But she saw them as her sweet, tender babies. And Jesus sometimes would talk to his disciples that way. This is up to this point in John, the most tender words he's had for them. And we're going to see next week in John 14, he's going to have more tender language for them. He's going to say, I'm not leaving you as an orphan. You're not on your own, but I'm going to send the Spirit. You will be cared for. You're going to be taken care of. So he's reassuring them because they don't really know what they're going into, Right? Just like you and me. We're like, I'll follow Jesus. And they're like, whoa, I didn't know it was going to be like this, right? And so he's saying, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. My, 
my little children. Yet a little while I'm with you, you'll seek me. And just as I said with the, Jew, uh, the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come, right? Some bad things are going to happen. You're not going to be able to follow me here the next few days. But this is where verse 34 comes in. The big commandment, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the supernatural mark that we are actually followers of Jesus is not whether or not you cried at camp one time, right? That's not the mark. That's not the mark he gives. It's not whether you gave a lot of money, although we appreciate it, okay? (laughs) Or served in the nursery. We appreciate that too. Come on with that. That's great. But the mark is love. The mark is love. Do you love one another? And what we're going to see here is this is a supernatural love. He says, love just as I have loved you. Love one another. So follow the pattern. Remember the pattern that Jesus showed us? John 13, 3, John 13, 4. He knew the love of the Father, so then he served and washed his disciples' feet. He knew perfect love. Philippians 2 reflects this as well. He has this perfect life with God, yet he chooses to come and give himself for us. He says that's what it should look like for us. So what, what is that? We, we know we're taken care of, so now we can take risks and try to help other people. We know we're loved by God. We believe the gospel, so we go love others. Do you know that love? Do you know that supernatural love? Uh, an image that he uses a couple of times in the Gospel of John is overflowing water, springs of water welling up from within us. He talks about the Spirit working this in our hearts. So I grabbed a picture of, of a glass of water that's overflowing. The idea in John 4, the idea in John 7, is that if we truly know the love of God, that there will be this kind of unending stream of love that God pours into us, and that will then overflow so we have something to give to others. So it's a self-giving love because he's given us a self. He's given us an identity. We now have a new identity. We're no longer spiritual orphans. We're now loved and adopted by God. We belong to him. We're in his family, and we have something now to share with others. If you have everything, you're going to feel more generous, right? But often we're like, I don't have everything. I'm not okay. I, I can't trust him. I don't know what's going to happen next. And Jesus is trying to get us to that supernatural place. This is not normal, but to that supernatural place where we actually trust God, that we would trust him so that we would then love one another. It's a self-giving love. So we receive love from the Father through the gospel. We trust that our sins are forgiven. He gives us resurrection life. We trust that that's true and real. And then we love other people. In practical ways, like Jesus gave the example of last week, washing people's feet, doing gross stuff, doing little jobs, dirty jobs, whatever it is, but also by sharing the hope that we have in Christ. So both deeds and words, we love one another because we believe we're really loved by God. It, it changes us. And I want to focus a little bit on why he says new commandment here. Look at verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Why does he call it new? Y'all know? Anybody know? Um, a new commandment? Because there's a problem with that, right? It's not really new. It's not new. He already told us to love one another, right? In the Old Testament, he said love one another. When, when the guys were quizzing Jesus, like, what's the most important law? He's like, well, here it is. The most important law is to love God. And the second most important law is just like it, love one another, right? And that was in the Old Testament. Jesus was just quoting the Old Testament. So he's saying, this has always been there. We're just not doing it. And so when we kind of step back and look at what he's saying here, he's using, I believe, covenant language. 
because the whole perspective of the, of the New Testament is that God is enacting a new covenant in Christ in his death and resurrection. We can look at the other gospels and we see as Jesus is having the last supper, this moment in time, as he's having the last supper with the disciples, he's saying, I'm enacting a new covenant with you. The covenant is based in my blood. Jesus is saying through his death and resurrection, a new covenant is now taking place. And he just doesn't pull that out of thin air, but that's promised in the Old Testament. The beginning of the service I read from Jeremiah 31. It promises a new covenant is going to come. So the old covenant was specifically the one where Moses rescued his people out of Egypt. And when Moses did that, God gave him the law, 10 commandments on these tablets of stone. And he said, because I've shown grace to you, now follow me. So we still see these New Testament principles of grace and redemption. God says, I've saved you, now obey me, right? That's consistent throughout the whole Bible. But the scripture, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, it's picked up in Hebrews chapter 8. It's talked about in the book of Galatians. It's talked about by Paul in First and Second Corinthians. The Bible says, though, there's this new covenant that's different from the old covenant. Specifically, Hebrews 8 quotes Jeremiah 31. It says, what's the difference between the old and new covenant? Well, the old covenant was like written on tablets of stone. Do this. The new covenant is written on our hearts. That's the difference. He says, I'm doing this new thing here. Through my death and resurrection, you actually be infused with the Holy Spirit. God's presence will live within you. You will all know me, he promises. It's a beautiful thing. So now we actually want to do the right thing. We want to follow Jesus. We want to obey him because he's written it on our hearts. That's the promise of the new, uh, new covenant. So here he's, He's using parallel language saying, okay, here it is. It's a new covenant. It's a new commandment. Love as I've loved you. I shared this with you last week. One of my professors used to say, uh, it's called the platinum rule. You will love others to the degree that you believe God loves you. Like that's how it works. That's the supernatural love of God. That is what he's calling us to. And I want to give one final application here because we saw this in Peter last week. Uh, and we see this throughout the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't call us to just love God alone in a room by ourselves, right? As Americans, we're very individualistic, and we tend to think of our spiritual life as a very private thing. Like, okay, I prayed that prayer in my room all by myself. I've had those experiences. You probably have as well, but it shouldn't stop there. We are called into a community, a family. We're adopted children of God. And we have a perfect heavenly father. We don't have perfect brothers and sisters, sorry to say. But we have a perfect heavenly father. And we live in community together. And I give you a, a really hard application. This, I'm going to kind of dare you with this, okay? This is really hard. This week, I want you to ask someone for help. Okay? Ask someone for help. That is a gospel uh, display of knowing I am needy. I need God's love, and one of the ways that God administers his love to me is by putting me in a family, and I need other people's help. Now, if you think you're self-sufficient and you know, don't need God's help or other people's help, that's fine, but I'm telling you, that, that's not a gospel relationship with God, okay? So I want to dare you to try this crazy thing and actually ask for someone's help this week. That's a display of the gospel. That's a confession that I am a needy person, and I need help. I know it's hard for you, but I think God will bear gospel fruit as you do this. Okay, 
last point, we see the example of self-righteous love in Peter. It's just a short little paragraph here at the end. Um, and I just want to be clear to you, I'm not trying to pick on Peter. Um, so we love Peter. Peter loves Jesus. He's a good guy, okay? But he does fail. And he gives us here a negative example. And so we can pick on him a little bit. That doesn't mean we hate him. It just means he doesn't quite get it yet. But there is a happy ending. The Gospel of John, at the very end of John, Peter is restored. So this is the beginning of Peter's failure, but the end of the Gospel of John is Peter is restored to Christ's love. Okay, so here, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Okay, this is like um, how you talk to your four-year-old, right? Okay, I'm, I'm going somewhere right now and I'll be back later, right? <laughs> like you can't follow me right now. And Peter kind of responds like a four-year-old. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Why? Why can I not follow you? And then here, he, he lifts it up a little. He, he ratchets it up here. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I will lay down my life for you. Now, I think there's something, again, beautiful and good about Peter wanting to follow Jesus, but here it's a good example of self-righteous love, of what we would call um, our kind of being satisfied in our own religiousness, right? Like, I can be good, God. I don't really need your grace. I can do all the things you tell me to do, right? I can keep your commandments, and then, God, you're going to have to bless me because I've been so great and so awesome. And Jesus is graciously breaking Peter here. He's helping Peter to realize that Peter doesn't have it all together. And I just want to say, I'm praying for those of you that are at that spot right now because I make light of it and I laugh about it, but it's really painful to go through, right? I've been through those seasons. It hurts to be broken. It hurts to come to an end of yourself. But the sweetness of it is you realize your need for Jesus. And you realize that Jesus meets you there. And so here Jesus says, no, verse 38, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And that's where the story goes. Peter lets him down. Now again, there's a happy ending. Peter ultimately is restored after coming to a, a fuller knowledge of the death and resurrection of Jesus and Jesus' love for him. But right now, Peter's still operating on his own strength. Right now, Peter's still operating as a religious person thinking, I can do this. I can do this. I can keep the requirements of righteousness. We call that self-righteousness. There are people who are religious, but still lost. People who try to do all the right things, but they don't really receive the love of Jesus. And so here, again, this is a beautiful thing because Peter's failure actually helps him come to a knowledge of God's grace, right? And there's this chart I've used several times in the past I want to share with you again. We've got, this has been in several different books, so I'm not going to worry about telling you which book it's in because it's in a bunch of them. Um, but the idea is that as we grow in the Christian life, there are two arrows, and those two arrows get farther and farther apart. The top arrow is we grow in our understanding of God's holiness, right? The more you know God, the more you become amazed that God is great. He is holy. He is awesome. He is amazing. That's a growing knowledge, right? Because God is so great, we just continue to grow in that knowledge as we get to know him. And simultaneously, as we honestly get to know God's greatness, then we honestly recognize how far we fall short, right? 
that none of us measure up to the glory of God, as it says in Romans 3.23. We all fall short of that glory. So we have a growing knowledge of our sinfulness and neediness, and we have a growing knowledge of God's greatness and holiness. And the cool thing about that is as that gap widens, as, as I feel farther and farther apart from God, I recognize all the more the great distance that God traveled in Christ to bring me to himself. And so the way this is displayed in the chart is the cross gets bigger, right? The cross is what fills that gap. God's grace in Christ is what fills that gap. That's the thing that brings us to God. And so we have this growing knowledge. God is good. He really does love me. So I want to encourage you. A lot of you are in that place of Peter. A lot of you are kind of stuck in some cycles of self-righteousness. And even as I'm saying it this morning, you're like, oh, that's not me. I'm fine. But God's going to bring you, he's going to bring you to that place of brokenness, right? And in that place of brokenness, don't despair. Say, wow, his grace really is bigger than I ever imagined. He really does love me more than I realized last week and the year before and the year before. And so we have this broadening understanding, this apprehension that grows and grows of God's grace to us. So how do we apply this? Well, I think it's really important to recognize the temptation. To recognize the temptation that we want to be the Savior, and we need to keep stepping off of that throne and allowing Jesus to be the Savior. Uh, one of my favorite authors wrote a book called Imperfect Pastor. So I don't know if you realize this, but pastors really struggle in this area, okay? So y'all pray for me, right? My desire is to solve all your problems, but Jesus' desire for me is to help you to get to know Jesus so he can solve your problems, Right? But I want to be the hero, but, but Jesus is the hero. So this book, Imperfect Pastor, kind of talks about some of the ways we're tempted, just like Peter. And Zach Eswine's the author. He says this, you will be tempted. And by the way, this applies to you too. It's not just for pastors, okay? So keep your ears open. You will be tempted to orient your desires toward doing large things in famous ways as fast and as efficiently as you can. You're going to be con constantly tempted towards that. I want to do big things. I want to do amazing things. I want to do glorious things. I want to be a superhero for God, right? Just like Peter. We're all a little bit like Peter. And Eswine goes on and says this, but almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. Small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time. Christian faithfulness. As Jesus says, loving one another as Christ loved us, taking the low seat, doing the servant's work, being faithful in the little things. This is a beautiful thing. I want to just give thanks for faithful believers in our body who have exhibited this. And I want to encourage you, if you're younger, we have a very young city and a very young church. If you're younger, find yourself a more mature saint, an older believer who can show you what this looks like, who said, yeah, I've just kind of Tried to be, I've just tried to follow Jesus in the little things. Just follow them around like a little puppy dog. Say, what can I learn from you? What does it mean to be faithful to Jesus over the long haul? Learn from them. Because as young people, I, I shouldn't put myself in that category anymore, I guess, but young people or middle-aged people are tempted to want to do big and fast and loud. But Jesus says, love one another as I've loved you. Humble and gentle and faithful, not concerned with fame, but concerned with real love. And that's, that's what we're called to. So again, he says, the way 
that he's going to become famous, the, the way that people will know who Jesus is and that we're a follower of Jesus is as we actually love one another in this supernatural way. Receiving the love of Christ, sharing with each other in humble ways, in little ways, in daily ways, faithfulness over a long period of time. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you do continue to patiently bear with us. That as we fall on our face and promise things we can't deliver on, you're there and you catch us and you clean us up and you say, let's keep going. Thank you for adopting us in your love. Thank you for setting us free from our own desires. Help us to trust you more. Help us to recognize that you care for us so we can trust that what you say is good and right and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.